This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. So why does human nature suggest that our accomplishments result from skill and our failures from bad luck? Yet, we judge others' accomplishments as a stroke of their good luck and their failures from a lack of their skill. And more importantly, how does this delusion permeate how we live? This notion of the line between skill and luck is explained, debunked, and brilliantly illustrated in a riveting storytelling style in Maria Konnikova's book, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. Maria came to this assignment with considerable skill of her own, a PhD in psychology, a writer for The New Yorker and every other major magazine and newspaper, plus two other best-selling books and a podcast of her own. So how did this research lead to becoming a professional poker player? And that's the question we will start with. So Maria, as your grandmother might say, how does a nice Jewish girl with a degree from Harvard and a PhD in psychology end up becoming a gambler? (laughs) First of all, it's so nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, Welcome to Just the Right Book. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And yeah, you know, you know, my grandmother still has not quite made peace with with what has happened, the travesty of my life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, it is not something that I anticipated or planned, or that was supposed to be part of this project. So initially, when I set out to write the book that became The Biggest Bluff, I was going to immerse myself in the world of poker for a year and write about the journey and use that journey as a metaphor for life. And as you say, as a way of exploring the line between skill and chance, between what we do control and what we don't. And I got that idea from John von Neumann, um, who was the father of game theory, who's a poker player, who wrote about poker that it was the perfect lens for decision-making in life because, like life, it was a game of incomplete information, of knowns, of unknowns, of people, of bluffing, of dynamics, of not just math, but psychology. And that's what drew me into the world. But there were so many things I didn't know at the beginning. I mean, not to mention I didn't know how many cards were in a deck because I literally <laughs> never played a game thing. cards in my life. Small thing, yes. Small, small thing. I, I, I sorted that one out quickly enough. But um, I didn't know, I knew that the book was going to work whether or not I became a good poker player, right? Mm. whether or not I was successful, because it was about the journey, about the, the knowledge, the learning process. I had no idea if I was going to enjoy this, if I was going to be good at it, if I was going to have any talent whatsoever. I didn't know what that journey was going to look like. And it became a very different book from the book I had set out to write by virtue of that experience. And it turned out that 
I did have some aptitude for this and that a lot of the skills that I brought from other times in my life, psychology, journalism, observation, all of these things came together in a way that enabled me to achieve greater success than I could have ever hoped for. And so, yes, I ended up staying in that world for much longer than a year and ended up becoming, for a time, not anymore, a professional poker player, by which I mean that I earned my living by playing poker. It was no longer from writing. Your grandmother definitely must have been perplexed. <laughs> so she what was. did your granddaughter do? <laughs> Well, it was it was this funny thing when I finally finished the book. So, you know, I had been writing the whole time um, in terms of taking notes, because this is something I recommend for any writer, any journalist, you know, write as much in the moment as possible, because you're not going to remember what it felt like. You're not going to have that mm. same outlook when you're going back in time. Our memories suck. And so no matter what you're working on, no matter what the story is, Try to take notes all the time, every single day, no matter how tired you are. Write your experiences, write how you're mm. feeling that day, because you're not going to be able to recreate it. And take pictures, take lots and lots of pictures. So I've been working on the book in that sense for years as I played and as I went on this journey. But then there was a period of concentrated writing where I took all of this together and made the book. When I finally finished, turned it into my editor, had everything done and went home um, to my parents, you know, to, to kind of celebrate and say this, this monster <laughs> that I've been taming for the last three years is finally in its cage. My grandmother just looked very hopefully at me and said, so you're going to stop playing poker now, right? <laughs> you know, it's done. <laughs> the book is done. And I was like, um, well, not exactly. <laughs> you know, that's, that's not the plan. Um, the plan is to keep doing both because I still feel like I'm on the journey, like I'm learning things about myself. And while I might not play as intensely as I did at some points before, what I told her was, you know, why, why isn't writing and poker, why aren't they compatible? Why can't I do both? Why can't I actually pursue both at the same time? Um, and you could see the disappointment because I think yeah. that maybe <laughs> now that the book was done, I'd move on to important things like like teach, like teaching. Yes. <laughs> like giving lectures in academia. <laughs> so Maria, when when I started reading the book and it talked about game theory um, and I hadn't quite um, thought about the distinction between, let's say, something like chess and poker. And the particular game of poker that you played was Texas Hold'em. So just so that we're clear in this conversation, I do know how many cards are in the deck, but now we've used up my card knowledge. Hey, so you're, you're better than I was. I was ahead of you. Ahead <laughs> of you. You thought there were 54. I know there are 52. After the emotionally draining year we all endured in 2020, there are positive things on the horizon in 2021. It's time to take what we learned in 2020 and start heading in a new direction. That's why instead of just celebrating a month of mental health awareness, it should be our priority all year long. Take the first step with online therapy. I wholeheartedly recommend Talkspace for Therapy. You can sign up online and start therapy the same day as you sign up. You can text, video, or send voice messages to your licensed therapist. 
so it's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions from the comfort of your home. Talkspace lets you send and receive unlimited messages with your dedicated therapist in the Talkspace platform 24-7. With Talkspace, you set goals with your therapist and they hold you accountable and make sure you're really progressing. Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and be a guiding light. Talkspace is the number one online therapy platform that has thousands of licensed therapists trained in over 40 specialties, including anxiety, depression, relationships, and more. Your therapist can help you set and achieve your goals. Talkspace is a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. Instead of waiting for an appointment, you can send unlimited messages to your therapist 24-7 and they'll engage with you daily, five days a week. Talkspace is secure and private, using the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information and complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. As a listener of the Just Right Book podcast, you'll get $100 off of your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com and make sure to use the code JUSTTHERIGHTBOOK to get $100 off of your first month and show your support for the show. That's once again, JUSTTHERIGHTBOOK and Talkspace.com. Now, back to the show. But tell us why Texas Hold'em is the perfect Petri dish for finding the intersection between luck and skill. Yeah. Um, Once again, this was not my insight, but this is an insight that I gained from reading a lot about the world of poker. So different styles of poker have different amounts of known and unknown information. So there's private information in any style of poker, which are the cards that you have that no one else can see, the cards that were dealt face down and only you look at them. And then there's the public information, which is the cards dealt face up that every single player can see, and that's information that everyone uses together. So depending on the variant, there are different numbers of whole cards, those are your private cards, and community cards, which are the cards that people can see. And in some varieties, there's just one whole card, and that means that there's really a little bit too little private information. Mm -hmm. And in some, you have you know, five, you have so much unknown that it becomes much more difficult to kind of do any mathematical calculations and try to figure out what's going on because the amount that you don't know is vast. And in Texas Hold'em and No Limit Hold'em specifically, which is what I play, two things are true. One, there are two whole cards and then eventually five community cards. And great minds like von Neumann have said that this is the perfect balance of known to unknown that mimics the dynamics of decision making in life. There's enough unknown that you have to guess, you have to read signs, you have to read people, you have to do those calculations and make those assumptions. And yet there's enough known that you have a leg to stand on. You have kind of this basis on which to act and you're not swimming in a vacuum. Um, And on the other hand, it's a game of no limit. And what that means is that you can bet any amount at any given point in time. You can wager everything you have in front of you. And if you're looking for a metaphor for life, well, that's life. Nothing in life is ever stopping you from wagering anything on anything, right? You can risk everything you have. You can risk your life if you want to. No one is ever stopping you, except for you know laws and human decency and, and things like that. But theoretically, life is a game of no limits. And the downside is infinite. 
<laughs> and the the upside can be infinite as well. And so when I was deciding, you know, what am I going to play? Um, it seemed like this was a really good tool um, for studying how we make decisions and having a shot of improving my own decision making in a short period of time. Of course, I could have learned all of these different variants of poker and all of these different styles of play. But when you have a finite amount of time and you're learning something new, I think the best the best bet is to focus and to focus as narrowly as you can. So you did two things right at the outset, and we're going to come back to reading people and 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 the role that that has. But you went and um, sort of blind in a blind way, meaning you weren't introduced to Eric Seidel and approached him. Why Eric? And why do you think he agreed to do it? I mean, you were asking him a a big ask, a yep. big ask. And so, you know, at the outset, when I was reading about you reaching out to Eric and the conversation and the meeting you had with him, I thought, wow, you were condensing what you were learning in poker about the intersection between skill and luck right there. It's true. And I did get very lucky. Um, I didn't realize quite how lucky until much later that Eric agreed. Um, and, and I might have... Uh, you know, I don't think he quite realized what he was getting into. <laughs> he yeah, didn't realize yeah. quite, quite what it was going to be. Um, but originally, um, I identified him. You know, it's, it started out with some very sophisticated journalistic research techniques, including Googling best poker player in the world <laughs> and seeing what came up. <laughs> How you know, clever. I'm, I, I'm next level. I really you need a clever. PhD for that. Yes. <laughs> Yes, that's that's what my PhD is good for, figuring out how to Google best poker player in the world. Um, in all seriousness, though, that is what I did. That was the mm. initial starting point. That's how little I knew. And then these lists came up and the list, lists of all-time earners and all of these things. And Eric stood out for a few different reasons. One, his earnings started in the 80s, and he was still number one so many years later and winning at the highest levels. And I couldn't find any other player like that. There were players who'd been playing for a long time, but who hadn't been successful at such a high level for mm -hmm. so long. So that was huge. Um, and that just narrowed down the field right away. And then I actually started looking at video footage of poker players playing poker. And Eric stood out there again because he, I think he was the only poker player who just never said anything. He just very quietly sat and observed and took everyone's money. And he seemed nice and humble and just kind of like a good guy. And a lot of the other poker players who I had been looking at looked like asses, to be perfectly honest. Mm -hmm. You know, they were obnoxious. They were um, aggressive. They were nasty to their other, to the other players or to commentators. And I just didn't get as good a vibe from them. Um, and of course, this isn't, it's not like Eric is the only nice poker player. But originally, those were the things that attracted me to him. And I was also trying to figure out who, what kind of a player do I want, right? Mm -hmm. The new generation of players, the ones in their early 20s, they're math geniuses. You know, they're PhDs from Caltech, literally. They're, those, those do play professional poker. Um, and people who really just spent all of their time crunching simulations and trying to find kind of the mathematically optimal play. And Eric comes from an older school, which is more 
psychology driven. And I wanted that because that's my strength. And mm-hmm. so it felt like too big of a bridge to cross to jump straight into the math, given that I hadn't taken a math class since high school. And I was actually very worried about that at the beginning when I just met Eric um, and he put that fear to rest and said that I'd be fine. But that's why I chose him as to why he said, yes, you know, I'm still still pondering that and still feeling very lucky. But I think that he was actually drawn to the fact that I wasn't a poker player, mm-hmm. that I was from a totally different walk of life because that meant two things. One, I could bring in an audience of people who weren't poker players and he loves the game and he wants to grow the game. And I think he saw it as a long-term opportunity right. to bring more attention to the game. The other thing is, I was a proof of concept. Could that old psychological approach still work? Could I be? Could he make me into a good competitive player without all of the intense mathematical work? Um, and if he could, that would be a huge win for him. So that brings up a bunch of other questions. One is, I was fascinated by the physicality of the game and. So here are a couple of questions for the for the listeners to understand a you found uh, which you can share with us how disgusting and dirty <laughs> the the place was the carpet was the chips were but the thing that I don't think I grasped was how long are you sitting there and are people are the other players actually talking to each other? I mean, I've never even watched a poker yeah. game, and I meant to do it before I interviewed you, and then, you know, time slipped by. <laughs> are people like, there was one instance where you talked about a guy like really propositioning you, right? Some guy wearing a green coat, really propositioning you. So describe the physical thing that's going yeah. on while you're playing yeah, so so the the first part of it is that poker is physically the most demanding thing I've ever done. Um and emotionally and intellectually it's just demanding by sheer virtue of the amount of time that you have to spend under high pressure making high stakes decision over and over and over. And you, if you're a tournament player, which is what which is what I chose to do, you're playing 12, 13-hour days, sometimes even longer. Um, we've joked before that if there were a union for poker players, you know, these work conditions would not be legal. Because you're sitting in a seat yeah. for that amount of time? I mean, you have breaks. Every few hours, you get a 10-minute break. Sometimes you get but a dinner it. break. That's it. And you have to, you can't leave. I mean, you can, but then your chips are still in play and you will eventually lose them all and it makes no sense to do that so if you play you're there and you can't just say oh I'm going to take a break you can't get up and say you know I'm done for today it's actually it's a marathon and it's physically incredibly demanding and I think these days a lot of the best players actually have fitness coaches Um, they have diet coaches they really do everything they can to be physically fit because you have to be. It gives you an edge. And also it's just exhausting. You start falling asleep at some point because it's past midnight and that's way past my my bedtime. And so on that in in that sense it's a very demanding activity. And there's actually it's interesting. Um there have been studies done on chess players, tournament chess players, 
that show that the highest kind of the intense tournament chess when you're actually playing, you burn calories that end up being comparable to real athletic endeavors. And there hasn't been a comparable study done in poker players, but I think you'd find the same thing because you're just using so many resources to remain focused, to remain present, to remain there. And it takes a lot out of you. So that's kind of the first part. In terms of do people talk? Well, it really depends. There are some players who don't talk at all. You know, they put on their headphones and they're in their own world and they will not say a word except to announce bets and to say all in and to say to announce actions. And then there would be other ones who are very chatty. The one you mentioned, my friend in the bright green tracksuit, um, who, yes, literally propositioned me um, and told me how much money he was going to pay me to go upstairs to his room. Um, and that happens, too. It's much less rare than you would like. And Maria, we'll talk in a little bit about you being a woman in a sea of men, but there were two things that particularly struck me. So one very important component that you learned from Eric and others was to pay attention, right? That there are people that you say are at the poker table and they're, you know, checking their text messages or checking on sports bets that they made, as opposed to those that are really, really paying attention. So in paying attention, we have most of our lives heard about, you got to have a poker face. And if you have a poker face, then you, that's how you're going to win at poker. They're not going to be able um, to read. But you talk about, I forget his name, oh, Blake Eastman who is an expert on nonverbal communication. So is poker face a real theory? And what have you learned about nonverbal communication that really helps you understand where another poker player is coming from? Yeah, for the most part, if you're dealing with anyone who's at all proficient, poker face isn't a thing because everyone has a poker face. Everyone knows that's what you're supposed to have. That's what you're paying attention to. That's what you're focused on, controlling your face, controlling what emotions are expressed on your face. And here's the thing. You actually have practice doing it every single day. We go through life with poker faces. Can you imagine how different life would be, how different social interactions would be if we let every emotion we feel (laughs) across our face, every moment we feel them, right? Imagine seeing someone you don't really like, but, you know, you're working together and you're always friendly and all of a sudden, instead of a friendly smile, your face goes, oh, that person again, right? (laughs) Like, just imagine that every single thing goes on your face unfiltered. We're really good at controlling our faces. We're good at controlling what we convey there. What we don't pay attention to nearly as much as the rest of our bodies, because no one talks about the need to have, you know, poker posture or poker feet or poker hands or poker gestures. You know, that's not something that we're often talking about. And it turns out that most of the information, if you're looking at nonverbal behavior, is not in the face. It's in the rest of your body. It's in how you hold yourself. And very specifically, a lot of it is in the hands. There's some really cool work that I've wrote about um, by a researcher at Columbia, Michael Slepian, who 
actually has done studies on hands, specifically in poker and then in other situations, and has found that our hands actually convey so much more information than almost any other part of our body. Um, and that Give us people, an example, Maria. Yeah. So I will, I'll actually walk you through the, the exact study that he did or the, the one that caught my attention because I think it's really, really cool. So he looked at footage from the main event of the World Series of Poker, televised footage. And he showed it to a bunch of people, some of whom had played poker before, some of whom hadn't. Um, and there were three different ways of looking at it. Some was completely unedited. So the way that you and I are talking right now, you know, from the waist up, um, you could see everything that the person was doing. Some of it, you could only see the faces, right? That, that famous poker face. And some of it, you could only see the hands. You could only see the arms and the hands. And the question was, how strong is this player? Right? How strong is their hand? And it turns out that when you saw the full video, people were about 50-50, which is about how good we normally are at being able to tell truth from lies, which is chance. <laughs> we're not very good at it at all. We're not good at trying at figuring out if someone's deceiving us. If they just looked at the face, they got worse. They were worse than chance. It turns out that the cues that we take from faces are the wrong ones. We look at things like, you know, jawline. Oh, this person seems trustworthy. This person seems like they're up to something. Things that don't actually matter in this particular situation. Evolutionarily, sure, you know, maybe stronger jaw means more aggressive, but doesn't mean anything in this particular situation. So the face actually screwed people up and made them less likely to know if someone was bluffing or not. But just looking at the hands, at how they handled the chips, at how they handled the cards, at the smoothness, at the speed of the movements, all of a sudden people were better than chance at figuring out who was actually strong versus who was just pretending. And that's amazing that you can actually tell that just from looking at their gestures. And it turns out that it's true, actually, in a lot of different areas. So um, there was a cool study done with people playing Legos. And people could tell just by looking at hands who was going to help, who was going to cooperate in building a Lego structure. And what were their hands doing that um, were it, helpful? I, it, it's it's all just, over. It, yeah, it's it's all over. But it's it's the quality of the gestures, and and people are still trying to figure out what it is exactly. I think a lot of us we pick stuff up without being able to say, oh, it's it's this or that. Mm -hmm. um, in rugby, you could tell which direction the ball was going to be passed to, um, if, which is huge if you looked at yeah. people's hands, even if you don't play rugby. Um, and so it's something where you really can see a lot. And I think there are a few different reasons for that. The most important one is that we're not used to controlling our hands. We're not yeah. always thinking, you know, what am I doing with my hands? We don't standardize that behavior in the way that we standardize other behaviors. And then there's a physiological thing. You know, when you see your hand, you see the wrist, right? So you see pulse. You see how what your heart rate is, what your pulse is. You see sweat, skin, condu skin conductance. These are things that we use in psychology all the time as measures of stress. So there are actually physiological signs there as well. This and things so physiologically, you couldn't necessarily control them. No, there's like you could do face or something else. Exactly, you can't. I mean, it takes a lot of effort to be able to control your pulse. <laughs> it's yeah. doable, but it's very hard. So, Maria, there are two um, two things that 
um, I'd like to spend a little bit of time on now. And you referred to one and how bad we are at really predicting the probability of something. And uh, you've got a quote here, which I which I loved. It's a quote from Don Quixote, where you, where he says, all these squalls to which we have been subjected are signs the weather will soon improve and things will go well for us because it's not possible for the bad or the good to endure forever, from which it follows that since the bad has lasted so long a time, the good is close at hand. So yeah, how, do, how, how, do we, how do we in real life and poker make decisions based on our misconception of probability? We have this sense that probability should be evenly distributed, that it should look like that little graph that you that you saw, you know, in your high school class or wherever it is that you mm-hmm. first looked at a bell curve and at the even distribution and at the fact that, you know, if something's 50 percent, then one out of two. Right. So if it's just happened, that means the next one's going to be different. Or, okay, if it was two in a row already, fine, then the next one's going to be different. Three in a row, okay, the next one really, really has to be different. We become very uncomfortable with streaks when things are actually clumping in a way that disturbs that even distribution. But the truth is that in probability, every single outcome is independent. And probability doesn't care what just happened. It doesn't care, you know, if it's a Mm -hmm. coin, it doesn't care if it's been heads five times in a row. Um, It might be heads 50-50 the next time as well. And what people don't realize is that these percentages, 50-50, 75-25, whatever it is, that's over the long term. And the long term is thousands and thousands and thousands of iterations. It's not today. It's not 10. It's not. And it's not one out of two. Exactly. It is certainly not one out of two. And yet what Don Quixote feels, I feel, is something that we've all experienced. I'm overdue. There's even there's a psychological term for it, the gambler's fallacy, where, you know, you feel like you're overdue for something good, for good luck, for your luck to change, because it can't possibly be like this forever. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's a quirk of human nature that actually makes a lot of sense because it allows for hope, it allows for optimism, it allows for very good things. Um, and oftentimes there's actually a reason for it where it's where it's real. I remember reading um, a number of years ago something that Steven Pinker wrote um, about the gambler's fallacy. Um, and he talks about the fact that, you know, it's reasonable if you've already waited, you know, 20 minutes for a train to think, well, it's, it's imminent. It has to come. It's coming, right? That's actually not a fallacy at that point, um, unless this train is just never coming. But in most situations, it's actually, you know, it can be reasonable sometimes to think that way. And so that reinforces this fallacy, which is completely unreasonable even more. So we can see why our brains might have evolved to be so bad at this. And the other, the other thing is um, that I write a lot about is that we learn probabilities through experience and life is not not a long-term sample of any of these experiences so if a one-off event happens to us and you know there's a one in a billion chance we might overweight it still 
because we, it's happened to us or we know someone to whom it's happened. But something that's much more common, if we don't know anyone, all of a sudden we're like, oh, 1%, that doesn't seem like a lot. You know, 2%, that doesn't seem like a lot. Oh, I don't have to be worried about this. We use our own personal experience, which is skewed, which isn't representative. And that overweighs anything that we might learn from a textbook or from a lecture or from what someone tells us. So, Maria, in poker and in life, how do you mitigate that kind of seductiveness of Don Quixote's theory of, no, it's going to get good now because it's been bad too long? What, what, do, you, what do you literally do to forestall yeah. against that? Well, one of the reasons why poker is actually a brilliant teaching tool at probabilistic thinking is you get to experience probabilities correctly. You actually get to sample thousands of times. You play hand after hand after hand. So if you're doing this not brainlessly, but actually actively engaged and thinking through the probabilities of certain things happening, then all of a sudden you are learning from experience, but Mm -hmm. these experiences aren't one-off events. They're not skewed. They're actually correctly distributed because over 10,000 hands, you're actually going to figure out what 1% feels like, what 10% feels like, what 70% feels like. You'll figure out that 1% is actually a lot. It's a huge number. Mm -hmm. And if I can have a 1% edge over you, that's wonderful because in the long term, I'm going to take your money because in the long term, that 1% is going to translate to the bottom line. If I'm a 98% favorite to win a hand, suddenly 2% feels very big because you see how often you lose. And it seems to happen much more often than 2% because when you're on that losing side, all of a sudden you say, wow, I didn't realize that that was big. You start realizing that 75% isn't as much as you thought right? because of 25%. So all of these things... It starts clicking, and then if you have this metacognitive awareness of what's going on, you can take it from poker into real life so that you can start making real-life decisions armed with the knowledge of what probabilities actually mean. We've had a really, unfortunately, we've had a really great real-world example over the last two years in COVID, and what do percentages mean? What are probabilities? How do they actually play out? And some of the people who I saw earlier in the pandemic were the best at figuring out that this was going to be bad and at making very quick decisions to, you know, that were rational, that were rational were the poker players because they saw these numbers and they said, uh-oh, exponential growth. Uh-oh, 1% fatality rate. That's huge. Uh-oh. You know, they, they saw these numbers, they understood and they took it very seriously, um, much faster than people who, were psychologists who should have who should have understood it but didn't because it is very hard to think probabilistically and rationally. So the other element that you talk about and it's obviously in the title of the book is what are the ingredients of bluffing? So in you know part of the bluffing is the reading of you know the hands not the poker face paying attention to what everybody's doing, what does that all mean? You're very, very rational about what's going on. But the other thing that you talk about that I found fascinating is the role of hope and the role of trust. So 
in a way, I would have thought that when you go into poker, you don't want to trust anybody because <laughs> how are you going to block if you if you're trusting everybody and thinking everybody's going to you know be their best self? Um, how are you going to how are you going to bluff them? Because then are you not to be trusted? So talk a little bit about whether it's best to go into a poker game or any activity distrustful or trusting. So I think that there are two different answers to that. Um, I think that when we're in a real world environment, I think trust should be your default state. And it is um, in terms of the way that the human mind works. It turns out that trust is usually our default state, unless unless we've been taught by a hard experience that we shouldn't trust. But babies, you know, have to trust adults at the beginning to take care of them, not to kill them. Um, and as we're young and growing up, we have to trust people in order to survive. Um, and if all goes well, and sometimes it doesn't, you know, that trust is rewarded. And when you look at societies that are more successful um, economically, socially, um, have better health outcomes, those are societies with higher levels of generalized trust. And if you think about it from an evolutionary standpoint, that also makes sense because who's going to survive? You know, the lone wolf or the pack, the, the people who are able to kind of build connections and trust each other and delegate and work as a team or the people who just distrust everyone and go off on their own. So you, you start to understand why trust kind of is is the default and why it should be the default. And we actually have a lot of psych studies that show that people who come into a study trusting each other end up doing better than people who come in not trusting each other. So I think in real life, trust is a very good default. Um, my last book was about con artists, and yeah. now I'm obviously in the world of poker, so I will give a journalistic little caveat to this, trust but verify, <laughs> especially <laughs> when it's an important decision. Never take anything on blind faith. You can come in trusting, but do your homework. Don't make assumptions. Actually ask the hard questions and verify when it matters. Poker, on the other hand, is a game. You're coming into an environment where one of the rules is that you should be deceiving people. Bluffing is actually part of the game. That you know, you you want to be able to win not only when you have the best cards, and if you actually look at who wins in poker, the better player wins more often than the better hand. If you look at the statistical analysis of what ends up happening in online poker where we have all of this data, most hands don't go to showdown, and oftentimes the best hand doesn't win. And so you have to go in knowing that people are going to be deceiving you, that they're Maria, going to be bluffing you. Excuse me for interrupting, yeah. but that's such an interesting point that you make in the book and you made about poker that I want to make sure we spend a minute on in terms of um, aligning poker with life and get your thoughts on this. So you just made the statement that the data shows that the better player wins over the better hand. To what extent do you think that aligns with what goes on in the real world? Now you're your PhD in psychology. All the time. I mean, I I think 
that the better player basically always wins. Think about who gets the job um, in, you know, in an in a interview setting, player A or player B. Player A has much better qualifications than player B on paper, but player B is so much more confident and says, you know, oh, no, I know how to do this. I know how to do that. Yeah, of course, like I'll be I'll be great at this. Whereas player A says, well, you know, I haven't done this for a while um, and I'm going to have to get back up to speed on this. And they're much more nuanced in their take and they give you an honest answer. They're not going to get the job. The person who's the blustery, overconfident idiot is going to get the job. Sometimes not an idiot. I say idiot because I've met a lot of those people who are idiots. A lot of times it's just smart. And I actually, when I'm telling people how to use poker in real life, I actually urge them to be to channel some more of that blustery confidence because oftentimes, especially for women, that's what we're missing. We forget that we don't have to be scrupulously honest all the time and that it's not actually, you know, we're, I'm not saying why, but sometimes it's better to cast a different light on your qualifications to try to figure out how do I spin this? How do I project more confidence? How do I compare with person B who's much less qualified than I am. But yes, in real life, I think it's probably even worse than in poker. Certainly equally true. Okay, now go back to trust and bluff. (laughs) So, So in poker, I mean, bluffing is part of the game. And so you'd be stupid if you assumed that you could trust everyone. You should probably play in games where you actually trust the humans who are playing so that they're not cheating you by marking the deck or otherwise, you know, changing the rules of the game in a way that's unfair to you, colluding with other players. That should not be happening. And yet it sometimes does as well, just like it does in life. People will cheat you in ways that are following the rules and in ways that are against the rules. Um, So just like if we go back to that interview situation, some people will, you know, bluff by projecting a little more confidence, which is part of the game. And some people will actually just blatantly fabricate stuff on their resume, which is (laughs) a different kind of cheating. Mm -hmm. And so in poker, both things happen. And so you should come in, you know, expecting that either of those things could happen. And unfortunately, even at the professional levels, at the highest levels, there are people who will cheat you in both ways. Um, And so I think you just have to come in saying, okay, you know, this is a game and I have a whole different set of assumptions. That doesn't mean that I'm going to become a distrustful person in everyday life and that I'm going to take this away from the poker table. But it does mean that I have to learn to look beyond the surface, to look beyond the stories that people are telling me, to try to figure out, okay, this is what they want me to see. What should I see? Mm-hmm. What What is there? What's the difference? Is the story consistent? To try to find where the bluffs are so that you can become the stronger player because the stronger player is the one who can see that and who can poke holes in it and who can make the right decisions and not be swayed by the swagger and confidence of the bluffer. My favorite chapter in the book, and I loved, I loved every bit of it. In fact, I want to read it again. Um, But my favorite chapter was full tilt. (laughs) Uh, that chapter. And for a couple of reasons, one is it felt like we were feeling every bit of what you were experiencing. I mean, I, I felt like I was right next to you 
being excited and sad and nervous and learning, all, all the things that you were going through. So just to set it up for our listeners, you've been on your journey. It's June of 2017. You've been on your journey for almost a year. You've worked with Eric. You've been to Monte Carlo. You've been to Vegas. You've been to Macau. You've had some wins. You've gotten some standing. You've gotten some confidence. And you're primed and ready. You're like in there. You're good to go. What more did you learn that you needed to learn? Everything. (laughs) (laughs) Poker is one of these things where, you know, the, the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. Yeah. Um, it's one of these good areas. Good for life, right? Yes. Good for life. Good for life, where you just start seeing areas of incompetence that you didn't even realize existed as yeah. your expertise grows. And one of the things that was a big blind spot for me, because I have a PhD in psychology, <laughs> was the mental game and the emotional element of it, because I assumed I have a PhD in psychology. I don't need help with my mental game. I don't need help with that. I've got it. I've got it covered. And I was way overconfident about that um, in a way I shouldn't have been. um, Because one of the things psychology should have taught me was that I was prone to that overconfidence in my area of expertise, because that's where we tend to be overconfident. You know, the areas that we actually know a lot about, we think we know even more. And so having studied this in the lab and, you know, done work on decision making didn't qualify me to actually be able to be my own mental coach and analyst in the moment um, and didn't help prepare me in any real way to performing well under intense pressure um, in the way that you have to when you're kind of on this big stage of, of competitive poker. And so... I realized that I had been working so much on my strategy and on kind of the mechanics of of playing the game that I'd ignored this entire other side um, that was absolutely essential if I was going to truly succeed and go to the next level as a poker player. Um, And so I had to, I ended up working with a mental game coach as well um, and ended up doing some hard work trying to figure out, you know, what my triggers were, kind of what my sore spots were, what, what I was made of emotionally, and more importantly, how do I deal with it? How do I account for it? How do I actually use it to my advantage instead of letting it be something that drags me down and that makes my decision-making worse. Um, And that was not a very pleasant process, which is why I think I probably ignored it for as long as I did. It's never pleasant to sit down with yourself and pick apart your mind. Um, You learn a lot of truths that you probably don't want to know. And I learned a lot about, you know, my biases. I learned a lot about the types of things that got to me, my own insecurities you know, the, the things that that I would have rather pretended did not exist. 
Maria, the other piece that I thought was interesting that you talk about at the end of the book is, you know, a lot of us have this false, um, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but but a false uh, cockiness that, oh, you know, I know I get hot-headed in this, or I know I feel crummy about myself when and you know you sit so you think oh you know I really I I got this I really I know who I am yet the thing that you so beautifully illustrate is knowing it in the quiet of your home or knowing it even in a psychiatrist's office or knowing it in this kind of remove isn't really going to protect you. So what happens in the moment that all of a sudden lets all that knowledge or seemingly knowledge desert you? Yeah, um, that's kind of the, that's the secret of high performers, um, athletes, mental athletes, you know, anyone who can actually still perform well under the under the lights under the pressure so it's very different to as you say sitting at home kind of think through okay i understand this situation it's a very different thing when you're in the moment when you're already emotional when you're already tilted <laughs> as as the right. poker term goes um to to do anything about it and so and you see this the reason I, I mentioned professional athletes is because that's actually I think one of the easiest illustrations of it. You have people who were brilliant college athletes who completely crumble when they're put into when they're drafted onto a professional mm-hmm. team. You have people who are amazing in practice who completely crumble when they actually have to play a game. And that's because their mental game isn't strong enough. That's because all of the physical skills are there, but they melt under pressure. They crack under pressure because that's what they haven't been practicing. So it turns out that it's not enough to know. It's not enough to know kind of, oh, okay, this is a situation that makes me feel like this. You have to go a step beyond or several steps beyond. You need to have a game plan, an exact game plan that you think about ahead of time. When this happens, I will do this. There's a term in psychology called implementation intention, your intention to implement something. And that takes the form of an if-then statement. So in my case, let's, let's take something you know, that did happen to me a, a lot of times, which is that you know, I'd be bullied for being female or you know, had my gender used against me. So I could say something like, if a player belittles me or calls me a little girl like one of them did, you know, have, have a, a broad statement like that, then I'm going to dot, dot, dot. In that particular case, I got some noise-canceling headphones and blasted them so right. that I could reclaim my personal space. It was something where I could actually still hear it, right? You don't want your headphones to actually blot out the world because there's important information happening. But you don't have to answer. All of a sudden, the social pressure to answer is off, which is part of that emotional feedback loop. So it's something very concrete you can do to break that. And you have to have a concrete thing for 
every situation. And then you have to practice it over and over and over so that when push comes to shove, when you're actually in the hot situation, you don't even have to think. You know exactly what you're going to do to mitigate it, to acknowledge that emotion, and to let that emotion go so that it's no longer going to affect your decision making. Because in the moment when you're actually in that situation, unless you know exactly what to do, you're not going to be able to execute. It's kind of like, you know, any pilot or driver or, you know, if you're in any situation where all of a sudden you need a quick reaction, if it's something you've practiced, you're going to be successful. If it's something you've never thought about before, you're probably not. Yeah, but and yes, of course. The other the other thing that it naturally makes you think about, I think about how many gazillions of bedillions of decisions we make in life and in business and how often we allow a unidentified emotion that you almost it's almost invisible to you. In other words, it could be somebody didn't say little girl in a business meeting and you're the only woman in the meeting, but they said something like, well, your husband must blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, whatever you were going to do, let's say you were going to be more confident, more assertive, gets yanked back. And you're not even aware, you know, you're not even necessarily aware of it. And I think reading your book and thinking about poker, I thought, well, you know, this maybe sounds stupid, but you need a mental game to operate, period. Sure. <laughs> I, I think that's absolutely right. And one of the things that Jared Tendler, my mental coach, taught me is the importance of actually doing the work and writing things down. So I actually had a spreadsheet that I used where I would put the trigger down, right? Like someone saying, someone you calling me a girl. You have to identify the trigger. You have to identify the things that set you off. And then what does it do to you? You have to actually do that work so that you can then undo it, right? So that you can then mm -hmm. either stop the trigger before it even happens or stop that process, stop that cascade from affecting your decision making. Because otherwise it will, it absolutely will. Um, and it's something that, as you say, happens in real life all the time. Um, people will try to get to you. Um, and sometimes they'll do it on purpose. And other times they won't even realize it. You know, mm -hmm. it's just kind of part of how they're communicating. And what you have to learn to do is recognize for yourself, you know, what are your triggers? What are your weak spots? What are your sore spots? Take that time to sit down with yourself and think through that. Okay, and how does it make me feel? Okay, now how do I take that emotion and diffuse it so that I don't use it? Neutralize the decision Neutralize process. It. I'm yeah. not saying don't feel the emotion. You're going to feel it. You know, that's your human. But say, okay, you know, Emotion, I feel you. This is what I'm going to do to yank you out so that you're not actually affecting what I do next so that I can still implement my logical strategic game plan, not my now newly emotional self. So, Maria, I, I hardly can believe it, but we're almost out of time. So I want to um, close with um, two probably obvious questions. but. What do you hope the reader will take away 
uh, from the biggest bluff? I hope they'll take away a lot of things, but most importantly, um, I hope that it will give them a better appreciation of the role that chance plays in life. Mm -hmm. I hope it makes them more aware of its presence in their own lives and in the lives of others. Um, because originally, you know, the one of the reasons I wrote the book was because I was just so fed up with how many people take kind of this idea of the American dream at face value. <laughs> you know, if I work hard, everything is fine. Um, and if someone isn't fine, then it's because they didn't work hard. Um, and that's just not true. And I want people to, yeah, I want everyone to work hard and to make the most of their skill. But I also want people to be humble in the face of chance and variance and to realize that life is a mix of the two and that there are lucky people out there. And if you're the lucky one at any given point in time, acknowledge that, say thank you, mm. and stay humble. Know that it's not just you. Know that, sure, you might be great, but a lot of things also went right for you. And I hope that it makes people more more humble in the face of their own achievements. Yeah, and, and it was it's, it's part of what I thought about when I was writing the introduction, that we do, you know, you talk about in the book that we, we as humans tend to overestimate our own skill. And we literally, if something goes wrong for somebody else, I mean, studies have shown this, yeah. you know, that you cite in the book, we think, you know, they obviously blew it yeah. somewhere, you know. Yeah, that, so that's, that's the flip side of the humility, right? I hope it makes people kinder, kinder to others and kinder to their misfortunes. So, so how did the book change you? Um I mean, I think that those things are both true. I think they have made me, you know, much more awed <laughs> by just how much chance there is in life. And in an ironic twist, you know, because poker is a game of zero-sum <laughs> interactions, I do think it's made me kind of a more empathetic person, someone who's better able to look at the world from other people's perspectives, someone who's better able to, you know, see what others are going through because you have to do that in poker and it teaches you a lot of those skills that can I think make you a better friend, a better person. But the other thing I think that it's the other thing that it's done for me, which I think is important and something that I really needed was I think it's just generally made me into a stronger version of myself mm -hmm. um, into someone who's more able to assert myself um, when I need to. And that's something I'm still working on. I'm still working on all of this. Yeah. Um, that's why poker is such a great game. <laughs> well, you almost made me think about trying to play poker. Um, <laughs> but I do, I, I, A, I want to thank you for uh, taking the time to be in conversation uh, about the book. But the other is, I do think you're uh, humility does show through the book. I mean, I do I mean, I don't think anybody can do what you did and, and in one year become a poker champion. Um, but I do think by taking us on the journey with you, we, you know, I did think about, okay, how, what, what role does luck have? What role does skill have? How do you operate. And I really want to thank you for that. I'm going to go back and read the book again. 
because I was reading it for the interview and I was, I want to read it just to sort of absorb it all again, which I think is valuable. Thank you. That's a true compliment. (laughs) And thank you for having me. Um, It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, everyone else, for coming. I'm sorry this still has to be virtual, but one day we will go back to in-person events. All right, Maria. Thank you very much. Thank you, Roxanne. And thank you for hosting me. Take care. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.